Um, there it is. Okay, so we're going to read the koan, then we're going to sit for five minutes. This is a reminder of our format. Um, and then we're going to read the koan plus comment. Then we're going to sit for five minutes. And we're going to write for five minutes. Uh, and then we're going to read the guogu commentary and discuss. Okay? Commentary in the koan. So, Xingyan is up in a tree. Master Xingyan said, it is like a man being up in a tree, hanging onto a branch by his teeth, with his hands and feet not touching the tree branches at all. Beneath the tree, there is someone who asks about the meaning of Bodhidharma's coming from the West. If this man does not reply, he is evading the questioner's question. If he does reply, he perishes. At such a moment, how could he answer? Okay, so we'll sit for five minutes. Do you want to time it? Sure. Okay. Okay, so now um, we need someone to read the koan again and woman's comment. And that person will be the next person in alphabetical order from the beginning. So that's probably Donna, right? <coughs> Is Donna there? Yes, sorry, unmuting. Oh, I'm reading. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so read the one uh, and the comment. Yes, woman's commentary, yeah. Okay. Um, Master Zheng Yang said, it is like a man being up in a tree, hanging onto a branch by his teeth, with his hands and feet not touching the tree branches at all. Beneath the tree, there is someone who asks about the meaning of Bodhidharmas coming from the West. If this man does not reply, he is evading the questioner's question. If he does reply, he perishes. At such a moment, how can he answer? Newman's comment. Even if you have eloquence that flows like a river, it is totally useless here. Even if you can preach the whole great Buddhist canon of the teachings, that too is useless. If you can give an apt, appropriate answer, you bring back to life what before was a dead end, and you put to death what before you was your life's path. If you cannot answer, wait for the future when Maitreya Buddha comes, and then you can ask. Rinyan was is blabbering nonsense. His venomous poison is inexhaustible, making the mouths of patch-rubbed monks go mute. His whole body is squirting demon eyes. <laughs> okay, so we have um, five more minutes of sitting, and then we will write for five minutes, and then we'll read Guo Gu's comment. 
We'll wait for five minutes. Kim, could you try muting and see if that um, takes out the background noise that I'm hearing? Hello, Kim? Yes. Could you try muting yourself and see if it takes out the background noise that I'm hearing? That did it. Thank you. And I think that I, uh, I think that I was, uh, should have read before Donna. Again, I mean, uh, after Donna, am I getting that? Oh, right. Well, no. Um, Wait, I mean, Gail. Trouty would read next. Trouty would read next, and then, um, and then Gail, and then Glenn. Oh, okay. All right. Sorry. Yeah. We think of her as Trouty, but her name actually starts with an E. So we're just reading Guovu's comment now. Um, oh, okay. Tell me if you hear it now. No, I don't. Okay. No. It's this thing about original sound and it keeps, when I turn it on, then it's fine. Okay. Or when I turn it off, I don't know. Yeah, something. So you want to you want to scroll down a little, Kim, so we get the start of Guogu's comment, and and so we'll each just each read one paragraph of this. Some of these paragraphs are long. So I don't hear anyone. Yeah, Trouty, are you muted? I think Trouty is still muted. No, I was unmuted, but there you are. There you are. Yes, well, I, I see it now, but okay, I unmute myself. You heard me a little while ago, didn't you? I, I didn't do anything, I didn't touch the mouse. Well, anyway, yes, I'm here. Okay, so this is uh, you got the first paragraph here. Okay, on page 58, right? Yes, Gurgu's comment. This is a wonderful case. I'm speechless. <laughs> if I say anything, I perish. If I don't say anything, I'm not doing my job as a teacher. Basically, Chan Master, Chiang Chang, uh, Shi Xiang, 8, 12 to 98, is presenting an impossible scenario. A man up in a tree hanging by his teeth clenched to the branch and someone is asking him a life and death question. If he opens his mouth and answers, he drops and gets killed. If he does not answer, what about the question? Chan Master Jiang himself experienced the limits of language, exhausted it, and finally brought to life his own life. Yan 
had a fabulous memory and was very intelligent. He was from the Shandong province in northern China. His teacher was Chan Master Wai Shan Ling Yu, 771-853, who had studied with Chan Master Ba Zhang Wai He, case two. Uh, Wai Shan knew that while Zhang Yan had full potential, he was still stuck in the conceit of intellectual civilization. One day, Wei Shang said to Zing Wei. Wait, 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 it's Glenn. Glenn, oh, oh sorry. Um, one day, Wei Shang said to Shen Yang, I'm not going to ask you about the sutras, the treatise, or I'm unmuted, or all the teachings that you have learned, but I do want to know something from you. Tell me, before you were born, what was your original face? Say something. Xinyan was dumbfounded. He searched through all the knowledge in his head but remained speechless. After a while, he came up with some answers. Wei Shen said, no. And again, to the next answer, he replied, no. And the next, no. Every one of his answers was slashed away. Xinyan went back to his room. He searched through his notes on all the Chan talks he had ever heard from all his previous teachers but failed to find anything. This experience became his natural ka'ang. Before I was born, who was I? This means before discriminating mind, before thinking of good and bad, beyond your categorizations and constructs and discriminations, who were you? Chen Yang burned all of his notes and purportedly said to himself, a picture of a cake cannot fill my stomach. With humility, he asked permission to leave Wishan. I have nothing to say. I'm worthless. All of my studies have been a complete waste. From now on and for the rest of my life, I will be an undertaker. I hear that lately no one has been taking care of the grave of uh, national teacher Yang Wuzong. I'll just go and take care of his grave and live there. He lived there for many years. The question planted by his teacher, Wishan, before you were born, what was your original face always remained with him? Before Zing Dan left his teacher, he tried to get some instructions from him. Wei Shan said, even if I were to tell you the answer, it would be mine. If I do tell you the answer, in the future you will scold me. You will hate me. Now go. Zhang Yan, totally dejected, gave up on practice. <coughs> All he did day long was to tend and sweep the grave. His hair grew long. He never even bothered to wear his monk's robe. He had naturally disrobed and lived in a hut by the grave. One day, this natural questioning welled up inside him and overtook him. Before you were born, what was your original face? Suddenly, as he was sweeping, he heard the sound of a pebble as it hit a bamboo stem. At that single sound, all of his attachments completely vanished. He became greatly awakened. Jing Yang broke into tears, then laughed, then cried again. He knelt down in the direction of his teacher, Wei Shan, and paid his respect by prostrating. He said, if you had told me the answer so many years ago, I would have never gotten here. He got up, cleaned himself up, packed up his bag, shaved his head, and returned to the monastery. Wei Shan asked, what are you doing here? 
Zayan presented him with a poem to him. Wei Shan was de delighted and accepted him back into the monastery. Later on, Zaytan became a great teacher. This is practice. This is the significance of Bodhidharma coming to China. This is why Chan is being transmitted to the, in the West without undergoing great perseverance, taking the teaching to heart, engaging in practice that is not dependent on intellectual relation. One could never realize the meaning of one's life. There are certain questions that just cannot be truly answered with concepts and ideas. The very reason you practice demonstrates this clearly. Who is it that speaks? Who is it that speaks? Who is the master here? Until you reach a point where words and language, actions, gestures, and limits completely far away, where nothing can reach it and nothing can touch it, you will never be able to resolve the fundamental question of life. What is it? See it's you, Nelda. Are you muted? Yeah, Nelda, you're muted. There we go. Nelda? Did we lose her? Nelda just chatted saying that she's having some technical difficulties. Oh, okay. So then it would be me probably, right? Some people think that Chan cannot be expressed in words but can be demonstrated through action. However, whatever can be demonstrated is still wrong. <clears throat> but how about the Buddha? He said so much from 49 years. Was he wrong? Are words wrong? Which do you think does a better job at expressing the truth, silence or gestures? The problem is not the words themselves. Words may communicate ideas very well, but they may not help anyone. For instance, you may be telling the truth about something, but if a person does not want to hear the truth, your words will go right out the other ear. Often, you cannot get a handle on the appropriateness of speech. Why is that? Because you don't understand the workings of causes and conditions and cause and effect. Here, I'm talking about not being able to perceive the disposition of people and situations, what needs to be done, what needs to be said, and when to be silent. You can't see that because because most of the time, you operate out of your own ideas of things. Pardon me. Can you hear me now? There's a lot of echo. Let me, I'm going I think it's because you have two devices on. You're listed twice, so you have, you're coming across two devices.
So one do you of the still do you still hear an echo? I think okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you. So why don't you read the next one? All right. Thank you. Similarly, silence can help, but it can also hurt. Sometimes the less chattering you have in your head, the fewer fixations you have, the more you are able to connect with others in the world. In those moments, you can truly be with others without contrived intentions. There is a natural connectedness and peace. You relate to other people on a whole different level beyond words. It is miraculous, intuitive, and genuine. That said, there are situations that require you to say something. If you remain silent, the outcome may really cause more problems. It's the same with actions. Actions, words, and silence may help, but also hurt. A person can devote him or herself for 10, 20, 30 years to helping those who are suffering and still have a very strong sense of self. Trouty. Oh, it's me, I'm sorry. Oh. So, the real, so the real question in this case is how to answer, how to respond. This case is about your inherent freedom. If you are free and unbound by, by words and actions, silence or speech, then no matter what you say or do, you will not be fooled by Chan Master Chiang nonsense. The whole context of this story is recorded in the transmission of the lamp in the Yingde era, or Jingde. One time a practitioner asked Zhang Yan, what is the meaning of Bodhidharma coming from the West? Bodhidharma is the founder of our tradition, who purportedly came from India, west of China. This meant, what is his true teaching? He went on to say, without speaking in terms of ultimate or conventional truth, without falling into extremes, what is his teaching? That's when Zhang Yan answered, you must arrive at a point like a man up a tree, hanging on to it by his mouth. He cannot speak, he cannot let go. Yet someone asks him a question and he must answer. What would you do? Zhang Yan's student, perhaps his attendant, actually provided an answer saying, I'm not going to ask about what the man is going to do when he is up in a tree or what he is going to say when he comes down from the tree. At that moment, Zhang Yang smiled in approval. But don't start tinkering with this reply in your mind thinking, what does that mean? What does that mean? Is the key before and after? I think it's you, Glenn. The real point, yes, the real point is to arrive at a place where you cannot advance or retreat. Hold on or let go, speak or not speak. This is the way to resolve the most essential question about your life. How to answer, how to answer, how to respond. This is the means through which you will bring your wisdom back to life and put your delusions to death. 
Pre-modern Chan masters have described the state of working on the koan or huato, huatao, as chewing a hot iron ball in your mouth. Perhaps you may think, why in the hell would a person chew on a hot iron ball in the first place? Let me substitute an image for you. It's like chewing a hot delicious dumpling, your favorite dumpling, right out of the boiling water. Since you love this delicious dumpling, you're not gonna spit it out even when it's burning hot. Yet you cannot swallow it either because it would burn your throat. So here you are, chewing and blowing and trying to taste it all at the same time. This should be the way to seize the hatao of how to answer, how to respond. Watu, excuse me. How do you respond to life without words and language? Silence or gesture, right here, right now. Whatever you may come up with is certainly not the true answer. Whatever you may dig up from your mind is certainly not it. There is no mind to dig. Nothing is concealed. It is only because your mind, seemingly with a life of its own, is full of conflicting thoughts, with one moment different from the previous one, and the next, that you cannot answer the questions of life. Qian Yang's advice is to keep to, to keep on asking how to answer, how to respond. In fact, you should ask with all of your might, all of your being, as if you're holding on to a tree clamp, to a tree lamp by your clenched teeth, with your hands and feet dangling in the air. If someone asks you a question, actually a question that you ask yourself. What is the meaning of Bodhidharma's coming from the West? Answer. You have to answer. If you don't answer, you are not compassionate. If you answer, you must die. What do you do? How delightful, how wonderful. Is it me? I think so, right? It's Nelda. Nelda's still muted. All right, I'm sorry. You must earnestly inquire about this until you come to a point when all of your discriminating thoughts of good and bad, words or silence, right or wrong, better and worse, success or failure, completely die. These mental states are totally irrelevant. All you have to do is generate, cultivate, and fuse with, the sen with this sense of not knowing and wanting to know. What is it? What is it? This is the whole point of Watto, or critical phrase method. Jiangjian has offered us a delicious, savory dumpling. You want to eat it, but you can't. What do words or silence or actions have to do with this? Just chew on this, how to answer, how to respond. This is the compassion of Zhang Jian's nonsense. To do this, you must first, you must meet the five prerequisites for working on gongan or bodo practice. These five prerequisites come from my own experience and what I have learned from my teacher. The first is to have great conviction and faith. The point of the gongan or critical phrase method 
is to generate the great questioning or doubt. As discussed earlier in the introduction, this does not mean suspiciousness. It means the sense of wanting to know, the sense of wonderment about the most fundamental existential question of your being. This great questioning is founded on great conviction in the method, in yourself, and in the teacher. Faith is the method. Um, faith in the method means to recognize that this unique Chan method has been passed down through generations. Other practitioners have personally engaged with this method and penetrated through to awakening. They have shattered through ignorance to wisdom. Faith in yourself means to recognize, I can do this, because the conditioning of vexations and delusions is not an intrinsic part of who you are. Vexations and delusions are originally empty. You are originally a Buddha. The word Buddha means to awake. Your original wakefulness is the wisdom of emptiness. Finally, you must have faith in the teacher. The teacher in Chan has one sole task, to help others become awake. The teacher must have great skill and timing and the ability to see the workings of causes and conditions. The second prerequisite is great diligence. Practice must be steadfast, continuous and earnest. You should not practice hard only on retreats. Instead, practice should be more like a steady, fine stream of water, which may be fine, but is able to meander through all difficulties and persist without giving up. You must be earnest, unpretentious, whether you are in retreat practice or in daily life, working, sweeping the floor, or relating to people. Your practice must be fueled by a sincere, down-to-earth desire of wanting to know who you are. This means the meaning of your own existence is driving your practice. This is great diligence. Connected to great diligence is the third prerequisite, great humility. Humility here is very different from guilt or the popular notions of shame. In Buddhism, humility is founded on recognizing that you really don't know much of anything. For example, isn't it true that you often fail even to recognize your own shortcomings and strengths, yet you can be full of yourself? To have humility is to recognize this and, and aspire to improve. You may have the full potential to awake, but at the same time you are responsible for all of your life choices and conditioning. So why do you choose vexations over compassion, delusion over wisdom? Why is it that you think you already know how to practice when you actually don't? It is because you fixate on upside down thinking, on your own view of things. Recognizing this, you must generate humility and change. The resolve to change naturally leads to the fourth prerequisite, great vows. This means that you vow to benefit others. Selfish practice begets selfish results. If the cause is like this, the effect will be like this. If you plant an apple seed, then apples will grow. If the cause is selfless compassion, then the effect will naturally correspond. This is cause and effect. In life, the reason you get yourself in trouble is that you think in a self-referential way 
fixated on your own notions. You operate in life through forming categories in your mind, compartmentalizing and discriminating between this or that. So this fourth prerequisite means that you practice for other people for the sake of not harming those around you. The truth is you are able to practice because of others. How can you learn anything with out so many people's help, directly or indirectly? You must recognize this and generate a sincere wish to live for the benefit of others, not out of selfishness, not for our own enlightenment. This prerequisite is really the key. You may practice for your own benefit in the beginning. After all, it is normal. But as you practice, you realize your connectedness to everyone, to everything, and you begin to expand from a narrow sense of self-concern to a greater sense of encompassing others. Only then you are embarking on the path. The fifth prerequisite is a great question. What brings you to practice deep down inside is this existential question, who am I? What is the meaning of life? Why am I here? You may consciously try to avoid such questions in life, but they are always in the back of your mind in some form or another, aren't they? Chan cultivates and nurtures that by turning it into a method with great concern, with a great question, you will have a great answer. If you don't have questions, there will be no answers. So small question, small answer, big question, big answer. No question, no answer. Hey, Glenn. Thank you. If you're able to fulfill these prerequisites, then as the text says, you will bring back to life what was before a dead end. What is a dead end? My teacher used to say that in Chan practice, in intense situations, you must become dead. You must have a dead mind, dead to all of your discriminations, all of your judgments, right and wrong, good and bad. Then you can bring it back, bring it back to life. A path will be revealed. In Chan, we call it Great, great depth leads to great life. No death, great death leads to great life. No death, no life. This is why the text continues. You put to death what before was your life's path. All the things that you are familiar with that help you to navigate through your life, all of your judgments, discriminations, good and bad, while they're useful in daily life, in intense practice situations, <coughs> you've got to put them down. This includes all of your many survival mechanisms. Some people's survival mechanism is to shut down. Someone is mean to them, they shut down. They're faced with challenges, they shut down. You learned your particular way of survival when you were young. Later, when things trigger memories of old relationships or of child, old childhood hurts, the same mechanism will kick in. 
Yet this is the barrier that prevents us from being free because they are really dead ends. From this state, you will come to life. You have to let go of your survival mechanisms, put them to death and transcend them. Okay. Now he's going to talk about the poem. Xian Yan is is blabber, um, blabbering nonsense. His phenomenal poison is inexhaustible. How is it inexhaustible? Because poison is able to destroy poison. Generations and generations of teachers can use it, just as I'm doing right now, encouraging you to take the practice to heart. This blabbering nonsense is actually an interpretive translation. The term Duxiang, which derives from Duxian, a poet in ancient China whose writings no one on earth could understand. He always cited the name Duxian at the end of each poem. Each poem. His real name was Du Mu. So basically, since Xuan means to select, what Xuan wrote after each of his poems were selected by Du, his poems never make any sense. They did not grammar. They had to be, oh, they had no beginning, no end. This became his signature poetry. I guess back when one could become famous through all kinds of means, he was so renowned that his name became a stock expression. As this, as in this guy is being Jusang or this guy is like Jumu. So when the verse says that Xiangbian is a Dumu, it means that he is not making any sense. Yet here lies the key to Xiangjian's genius. Smash through your logic. Cast away your conceptualizations and reasoning. Whatever sense you use to try to understand life will not suffice. Such was Xiangjian's compassion. Such was his medicine for your sickness of intellectualization. <laughs> Making the mouths of patch-robed monks go mute, his whole body is squirting demon eyes. This is a verse of praise for Xiangyan. It expresses the workings of great compassion. Guanyin Bodhisattva, or Avalokiteshvara, is the embodiment of compassion in Buddhism. She is said to have a thousand eyes in the palm of her thousand hands. Woman says that these are all demonized, demon hands. Why? Her hands help to uproot all the demons within us. They are demon eyes and hands because in order to help you, Guan Yin must use your poisons as medicine. Poison is a blessing. It depends on how you use it. Words and language can delude or liberate. Here, knowing your deep entrenchment in words and language, Xiangyang puts you in a situation of conceptual impossibility and threatens your way of existence, hanging you on a tree by your mouth and asking you to say something. Isn't it true that you have always tried to live your life by your own ideas and notions? In order to truly answer him, you must become mute and put an end to common sense. Only by doing so, Will you realize your true nature? Xiangyan has already presented you with a dead end. 
but he has also presented you with a way out, a life road. Which way will you take? Okay. Here we are. So, what do you think about this koan? Well, I think it's really parallel to what's going on right now. It's, it's so timely. And yeah. Especially the bind that the Republicans are in. Right. Where there's no, they either perish or they speak their truth. Yeah. Um, I, I was struck by a way right away with the metaphor of hanging on with your teeth yeah. is just gripping tightly. You can, you, you can't, you can't do anything when you're gripping that tightly. Right. So, so from a Zen perspective, <laughs> that's, that's a pretty obvious answer that you're going to open your mouth and fall, fall to your parish, but that's, that's what he wants is for you to fall to your death, right? I mean, to, to let go and fall and have this catastrophic. Well, that's an idea, isn't it? Well, I don't mean literally, but. No, I mean, it's a, it's conceptualization. So you're thinking about. I am. I am. Of course. Must mean. Yeah. And that's what we do, isn't it? That's naturally what we do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was um, I was thinking that it was uh, very um, timely for me to read this uh, poem because uh, I had an experience um, Saturday. I have a discussion group, a spiritual discussion group I belong to. And um, I became uh, triggered. And sometimes I go into the discussion saying, I'm not going to say anything. And other times... <laughs> Whenever I go in with that idea, suddenly I find myself speaking. <laughs> sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's not. But in this particular uh, meeting, I became triggered by other people's um, confusion and kind of suffering. And I felt my conditioning came up. My conditioning is to try to help and yet I'm always getting somehow thwarted with helping. I can't help. You know, this is very old conditioning. So I was coming from that. This koan, you know, talks about um, that. And I came to a place really where I had to just stop speaking entirely in the meeting and meet all the emotions that were coming up. And then when I got out of the meeting, I began to even have more emotions and realized that where I was trying, the help that I was trying to give, or let's say the wisdom I was trying to impart <laughs> um, was not coming from presence. It was coming from some totally other place. It was calling me to look at it. And I kind of really relate to um, Zhang Yang, you know, when he finally, you know, figured out that all of his concepts were coming to naught and he just had to give up and go, go back to the drawing board somehow and, you know, <laughs> give it all up. And that's kind of the way I felt and the way I've been feeling. 
And um, it's kind of like that phrase, physician, heal thyself. It's like, what, what possible good am I doing anybody when I'm caught up in my conditioning and trying to come from that place? Who, who's trying to help who here? You know, what is this? And so I, I've been kind of, um, I've been working with that and I actually have some friends that I reached out to. And, you know, they didn't tell me what to do. They just kind of held my hand through it, you know? And uh, I'm, still, I'm still going through it. But this koan almost seems to mirror perfectly what Zhang Yang, you know, was, went through. It's sort of, I, I, I've got all these concepts, all these spiritual ideas, and I can, you know, pop out with them every now and then. But they really don't mean anything because they're not coming from my deepest place, the place that I really, really want to wake up to. So, yeah. I get teary-eyed when I think about it. Thank you. Um, I, um, when we were writing, well, let me say, I will say this first. You will hear me say many times, this is my favorite koan so far. I think I've said that now for five <laughs> koans, right? So, <laughs> so today, this is my favorite koan so far because what came up for me is that, and I wrote, is that when I sit and ask myself, what is my practice? What is it about, really, really? Where, where am I going with this? What is my path and what... What, what are the, the whys? And I compose an answer. And the minute I compose an answer, it's wrong. Because mm -hmm. I've now moved 15 minutes into space and time. And in the process of composing, I've changed. So the answer's not right anymore. I'm different. And, and I feel that shift now. I feel like sometimes I'm up, I'm down, I'm left, I'm right, I'm going in circles, coming back to the same place, knowing no answers and thinking, okay, let me start over and compose an answer. And it happens over and over. So I love this because it speaks to that um, experience. And I, I also truly appreciate um, this particular case pointing out the five steps to practice and to and to stay on the path and the requirements of that so that I can hold those even when I'm upside down or holding the tree by my teeth. So that's that's what came out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Um I mean I um I realized um so I wrote a little bit about this. Of course, this has happened to you even without the need for a tree to hang on to. Someone asks, do you love me? As you are gazing out at the battlefield strewn with corpses from years of warfare, tiny victories, major defeats. Even to hesitate is to perish on that field. Or on hearing the words, your father is dead. What comes to mind? How will your knowledge of rhetoric and argument help you? or in everyday conversation, pass the salt, for example, or would you open a window? How are you still clinging to the branch beyond thinking and non-thinking? 
When everything is at stake, what can you say? Zen is not a teaching of correct language, but of the absolute end of what creates language. So that's what, he, that's what uh, I thought Xiangyang experienced in his, uh, in his awakening experience. So when we studied the Eightfold Path last week, before, everything was so clear, like there was, it seemed very much the opposite of this koan. It seemed like if you just uh, were smart enough, you could get to the, the right action. Yeah, but, um, but stop and think about it. How will that help you if you have a cancer diagnosis? If you, uh, you know, it, there's a sense in which it's a form of training, but it's not the, it's not the kind of um, awakening experience. It's only a preparation for it. Because ultimately, all of those words, right action, right effort, and all of the words around them are not going to be that helpful to you when, you know, when you in particular are, you know, clinging to a branch by your teeth. Yeah. We try. We really try, you know. We never give up trying, but... It's well, I'm kind of curious what education's about, because it teaches you how to do this, these things, and yet, when it really comes down to it, you're you have no idea. Well, for me, what I used to tell the undergraduates, and I think it's sort of how I think about it, is um, education is to introduce you to the kinds of questions that people in various fields find interesting, and the practices and methods that they use to go about answering those questions. So, um, so it's a certain habits of inquiry and the process by which that inquiry is engaged. So, so history isn't about learning facts and figures about when the Civil War started or when you know, the Crimean War ended or whatever. Um, it's really about how do the historian think and how do they make sense of the world? What do they use to make sense of the world? Well, they have fragments of journals, they have diaries, they have newspaper articles, and then they weave a story. So they have a question, you know, what, what really started the Civil War? Or they have a question, you know, that has to do with a, a famous figure. What was this figure really thinking about? What was his motivation? So there's a sense of, for me of the introduction to how higher level questions. So I always said, I didn't learn anything in graduate school uh, to answer any of my questions I came into graduate school with, but I did learn a better class of questions. So that's what I learned in graduate school, a better class of questions. So, um, so, so I think that's what education is for, to introduce us to the process of inquiry. And from that standpoint, it could serve very well for people working on koans. Because you discover that, that tradition methods of attacking a what seems like a logic problem absolutely do not work. So it forces you into a new way of thinking. It forces you into a different perspective than you've held all your life or that you thought was perfectly normal or that you thought was the way things got done. It just, as it continues to pull the rug out from under you, you're forced to open your mind radically, right? Because none of the things that you've used in the past can work. 
if you ever engage in koan practice with a teacher, I did with Joko and I did with Hogan out at the monastery. Um, it's, it's just a progressive defeat for all of our typical ways of thinking about how to resolve something. And that's beneficial. And ultimately what, uh, what arises is so much fresher and so much more surprising. Uh, and, and as people have noticed, like this koan is very, very applicable right now, today, right? Even though it's from China in ancient, ancient times. So we look around, we're all kind of hanging onto the branch with no hands, right? Yeah. Also, we're learning that logical argument doesn't have a lot of weight. That's right. That's right. We're learning the limits of language right now. Yeah, sometimes... Go ahead. I was going to say sometimes the people you're trying to communicate with have to want to hear what... have to have to want within themselves to know these existential questions you know i mean it's um i love i love that the i love that the anything yeah you know uh, in other words when this character left he left all of his concepts behind you know all the written everything and he he just sat with the existential questions, you know, the existential, what in the world's going on here? What is this? What am I? And um, not everybody, you know, in let's say in my world wants to do that <laughs> or, or needs to. And, you know, and then I have to understand that it's not important what they want. It's, Yeah, that's, okay. That question's important to me, to me. And only when that question is asked, am I going to be of even the real help to others in, in an odd way? Um, I mean, at least it, it kind of feels that important, you know? Yeah, uh, that's, that's why he talks about great vow. Mm -hmm. you know, right. The vow that runs through it. Otherwise, you just say, well, this is interesting, but I'm not going to do it, you know, or I'm not going to engage it. Um, and, and then you walk away. So that's, you know, really walking away from this vow. Can right. I get, you know, in order to actually be a resource for others, can I get completely free of my preconceptions, intellectualization, analysis, all of that, you know? So it's almost like you have to be capable of thinking like an anthropologist. <clears throat> Yeah, and I like in like, this koan, it said, um, you, um, you have to, you know, in other words, complete silence is not the answer, and speaking is not the answer. Neither one. You can't land either place. It's not only that, but even, um, even hesitation is not, is not acceptable. So even a moment's hesitation. So somebody says, do you love me, and you hesitate? That's just filled with meaning, right? Yeah. So you're already hung, right? And so, so this is what I think this koan is really wonderful. It's a pivotal koan. Um, 
and to understand um, you have inhabited both, both um, roles. So the role of the person who's hanging out with their teeth and can't figure out what to answer, if anything, and the, and the person making the inquiry. You know, by the way, you know, not knowing that the other person is hanging on by their teeth, you're like, by the way, <laughs> why did Bodhidharma come from the West? But you're asking it with all your might and it's all your heart. And so maybe you're the one saying, do you love me? Right? And you can't see that the other person is hanging onto a branch <laughs> with no hands. <laughs> Yeah. It's a great con. Yeah. And so we've all experienced it. I mean, we've all, all experienced this con in one form or another. Um, and even in that, what does love mean? I mean, when you ask, do you love me? Exactly. It, it, you know. <laughs> well, you have to be careful because all of a sudden your mind goes right into definitional argument. So. So that's the, um, that's the trap, you know? So if somebody says to you, do you love me? And you say, well, what does love mean? You've already answered the question, right? So, so it's, yeah, actually, it's great. In Japan, you never tell someone you love them. You tell them the moon is beautiful because you, you would just kind of kill the whole idea. Seems like a good plan. Checking on this puppy. One becomes really, really vigilant when one has a puppy. <laughs> mindful, but not necessarily of the things you want to be mindful of. It's like she's drinking water right now. And she's, you know, like it's a very short tube. So I, I heard this story a little differently where, where he was, uh, star student and he had all the books memorized and someone comes from another village to test him and then and that's where uh at, he asked him the question who were you before you were born or your mother's face or whatever it was uh and yeah, that's what happened to, to xiangyang yeah yeah that's that's it. that's in the background that Guo gives well, yeah, but yeah. everything, it, it doesn't really clearly say that, but he was the one who had the all the answers. Yeah, yeah. He was, you know, he had all the sutras, all the treatises, all the, all the notes from talks of teachers, you know. There was nothing he couldn't answer until this question came. Right. That's what happened to Rumi as well. For who? Rumi, the poet. Oh, yeah, the, yeah, he was composing his note lecture for his notes to his students or something, and Shams, this desert homeless person, wanders up and asks him what he's doing, and he tells him, and he grabs his notes, and he throws them down a well, and off they go, and the rest is history, as they the say. The rest is history, right. Yeah. yeah I'm, um, I'm reading Huang Po. Peg, do you know who that is? Yes. Huang uh -huh. Po. Yeah, um, about um, him. Or, yeah. Yeah, you know Trouty, huh? Yeah, and, yes, and um, yes. he basically is telling you that you have uh, that all concepts have to go out the window. Conceptual mind 
disappears, has to disappear, which is, um, it's something that's really, um, you know, difficult from the state of mind that I'm currently in to even imagine, you know. Uh, well, we, we love our concepts, we cling to them. How we make sense of the world. But then all of a sudden we find ourselves in a world that doesn't make sense. Where our concepts don't really work. Their teeth right now. Everything changes. Everything's changing all the yeah. time. That's all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So if we're stuck in our concepts, we're, uh, we're always going to be behind the changes. We're never going to be riding them, you know, like a surfer. <laughs> we're always going to be behind the wave. So yeah. Anything else? It, struck people about this? Did you think Gogu's commentary was helpful? Yes. I, I thought with, yeah. I thought the the first comment was really helpful actually. Wait, wait what's his name? We Woman. Woman? Woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I wasn't sure at first if it was a good thing or a bad thing to bring back to life before what was a dead end. Uh-huh. I know I'm being good and bad. Or to put to death what before was my your life's path. Like, and then I'm like, my life's path was delusion and binary thinking. Right. That's a dead end, right? Yeah. As long as you're depending on that, you're not fully alive, really. Well, um, so in my artwork today, I had this kind of plan that I would go from A to B to C to D. Yeah, you know, and then I got to the point where where it was no more than that, and it was it was really neat that then a complete accident occurred. That uh, no, but it was the same kind of thing. I knew that something different had to happen before anything would come from this, but you can't plan that. So you need the plan. I mean, you've talked about that before. You need a plan, but you can't follow. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> the plan just establishes a direction and a kind of trajectory for action. And then once the action begins, it's not, not that helpful. I'm watchful. <laughs> I know well, she's going to have to go out soon. <laughs> I thought the commentary was really wonderful. I would not have understood the point of this case very well without it. And he just, you know, by bringing in um, 
uh, Zhang Yan's story, you know. Yeah, example. yeah, that helps. And and then then his those five principles, um, you know, that he just enriched it and just you know, and then it all um, begins the pieces somehow hold together and. Um, Yikes, I hope we're not making concepts, but um, it was really, um, it was a wonderful thing to see how, how it grew in his hands. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate some of the background that he provides that gives you a context for understanding, you know, various parts of it, so. I, I thought the, I thought it was beautiful. I thought his commentary was beautiful in the way when he says Chan cultivates and nurtures that by the great question by turning it into a method. That's a great, uh -huh. that's almost a, if someone said, what is Zen? I would never answer them, but that's almost an, I mean, that's almost the answer. Yeah. It's a method. Yeah. It's not a philosophical method. It's not a Socratic method or an Aristotelian method, but it's a method. Mm -hmm. The book, The Method of No Method. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Sheng Yan was Guo Gu's teacher. And so that, um, The Method of No Method is by Sheng Yan. We've taught it many times. It's, um, it's such a great book. And it's about silent illumination and this uh, poet Hong Ji who wrote about silent illumination and as a, as a method, as a practice. It's, it's great. One of the chants in the chant book is from that book, yeah. Hong Ji. Who, who's, wait, who, who is his student? Guo Gu is Sheng Yan's student, was, uh, was his attendant and senior, uh, senior student and, and Dharma heir. Um, so Sheng Yan was a very, very beloved teacher with a huge following. So, and he's a contemporary teacher. He died just a few years ago. Well, it feels to me like a few years ago. Maybe it's 10 years ago now. I don't know. There's the kitten. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> he came to me and said, why don't you pay attention oh, to me? Oh, oh, oh so cute. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. Well, I have to go let this puppy out, I see. Um, Thank you, Peg. She's making both Thank of us you. very nervous. <laughs> oh, I'll meet myself. Okay, so we will end. Okay. Is that all right with everyone? Yeah. Yes. Oh, ever. Good Thank night. You. Take care. Good night. Thank you all so much. It was nice to see you all. Good yeah. to see you. Bye. 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 -bye. <laughs>